stay hungry, stay foolish. These were the final words delivered in the 2005 commencement address at Stanford University by the late entrepreneurial inventor extraordinaire Steve Jobs. As the CEO of the multi-billion dollar company Apple, Jobs began to deliver a 15-minute address that is now considered one of the greatest, most inspiring speeches of our modern day. Ranked up there among the likes of basketball legend Jim Valvano's famous Never Give Up, Never Ever Give Up that he delivered at the 1993 ESPY Awards on his fight against cancer. But what made Steve Jobs' speech so memorable that day was that he broached a topic that's largely ignored and is largely taboo in our society. That was the topic of death. Hear Steve Jobs in his own words when he says this. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is one of the most important tools I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination that we all share. No one has ever escaped it, and, there, and that is as it should be. Because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old and makes way for the new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become old and be cleared away. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Now, having said these weighty and fairly on-target observations, Jobs concludes in the following manner. So, stay hungry, stay foolish. I have always wished that for myself, and now as you graduate and begin anew, I wish that for you. Stay hungry and stay foolish. Steve Jobs is right about a great many things in what he says. Life is short. The imminency of death is motivating. Death is life's change agent. And our time truly is limited and our lives ought not to be wasted. These things are all true. And yet, he misses it altogether. The message of Psalm 90 could just as easily apply to those same college graduates that Jobs was addressing. And while he encourages each person to stay foolish, the psalmist, the writer of Psalm 90, encourages each person to become wise. It is through the numbering of our days that we receive a heart of wisdom. Let us read this psalm together in its entirety so we see the flow of the passage. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight, or but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. 
You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all these days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This morning, I believe that the Lord would have us observe the following things from Psalm 90. I believe in verses 1 and 2 that we should see God as our eternal habitation, our eternal dwelling place, our place of refuge. In verses 3 through 12, we see God as our sovereign authority over everything. And lastly, in verses 13 through 17, we see God as our merciful restorer. God is our eternal habitation, God is our sovereign authority, and God is our merciful restorer. Before we go any further, would you pause with me and pray that God's Spirit would guide us and lead us into all truth this morning. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you that you are here with us right now. As this psalm is about to unfold, that is not something that we take for granted. Father, thank you that you have marked us out, both our, end, both our beginning and our end. Thank you that you know us with covenantal love, with a fixed, loyal, steadfast love that will not leave us. Thank you that all this is possible through the atoning blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, would your Spirit be glorified in illumining hearts this morning that we may observe truth in your holy scriptures, that this psalm would come alive to us, and that we would not stand above it and judge it, but that we would stand beneath it and draw the nourishment that our souls need from it. We ask this all for your glory. Amen. There's some background information that we should know as we approach Psalm 90. Perhaps you've noticed in your study of the Scriptures that the book of Psalms, the Psalter, is a very carefully constructed compendium of five books. Book 1 includes Psalms 1 through 41. Book 2 includes 42 through 72. Book 3 includes 73 through 89. Book 4 begins with 90 through 106. And book 5 includes 107 through 150. 
Each psalm that begins and ends these section of the Psalter is significantly placed, and each section begins with a doxology. In fact, Psalm 1 forms an introduction to the entire Psalter by highlighting the blessed individual who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, whereas Psalm 150 culminates the theme by praising God by calling all creation to erupt in celebration and joy. Having been carefully arranged, the Psalter that is, over a period of of nearly a thousand years during the history of God's people, these five books within the Psalter parallel the first five books of the Bible, causing some to refer to the Psalms in their thematic flow as the Pentateuch of David. So where do we find ourselves in this? Well, think of the previous Psalm. Psalm 89 closes book 3 by asserting the promises of the Davidic covenant. God has promised to be faithful to His covenant, but the monarchy is in serious trouble. It ends with a lament calling upon God to show His steadfast love and to remember His covenant promises to David. Psalm 90 then reminds Israel that God has been working on their behalf long before David ever came along. So Psalm 90 re-anchors Israel's hopes to their foundation. Thus we find ourselves looking in Psalm 90 at the oldest psalm in the entire Bible. And potentially, this is one of the oldest writings in the entire canon of Scripture. Depending on when Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, this could be the oldest piece of Scripture that we have. Psalm 90 is the only psalm written by Moses and has as its background some unspecified calamity or disaster. So although this psalm is technically a a communal lament a lament on behalf of God's people, the community as a whole. It intertwines this wide variety of literary genres, making it kind of difficult to make a clear category for the psalm as a whole. But what remains clear is that this psalm has an expressed purpose. It is a reflection on the transience of life, one that contemplates the nature of life under God's wrath and affirms the necessity of living aright in the presence of the Lord. So when viewed from a different perspective, this psalm looks backward at the the way things used to be in verses 1 and 2. It looks now at the, it it contrasts that with the things, the way things currently are in verses 3 through 12, and then looks forward in faith that God will graciously restore His blessings in verses 13 through 17. Well, let's begin by examining this opening doxology, this opening hymn of praise in verses 1 and 2. This displays for us God as our eternal habitation, our eternal dwelling place. Verse 1 reads, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. The psalm begins and ends with the affirmation that God is Lord, Adonai, the creator and the ruler of the universe. This is assumed. It needs not to be proved. It is assumed. He alone is the beginning and the end of everything. The term dwelling place carries with it the idea of an animal's lair, the secure abode that it prepares for itself. 
The term can refer to God's secure dwelling in the heavens or His dwelling place in His earthly temple. However, here the text does not say that Yahweh has a dwelling place, but rather that God, that Yahweh is Himself a dwelling place for not only that generation, but for every generation. One can imagine how this would be especially significant when you think of the context, the wilderness context that Moses was writing from. As one man writes, he says, for 40 years in the wilderness, God's people had no place to call home. Wandering like nomads in the desert, they had been without any earthly dwelling place of their own. They never had unpacked to settle down, but were like a tumbleweed driven by the wind, never tied down to one place. And in the midst of this vagabond existence, Moses acknowledged that his soul rested in God, who was his true dwelling place. How closely, though, Moses' declaration here parallels the heart of God ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, enjoyed their secure abode by walking with God in the midst of Eden. How incredible that must have been. Can you even imagine walking with God as you'd walk with a friend? And ever since mankind's deliberate fall into sin, God has continually provided a way for us to dwell with Him. Of course, at different ages and at different points in redemptive history, but always on His terms and always in the way in which He makes possible. Verse 2 reads, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Hear the phrase, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, shows God's creative control over both the created cosmos as a whole and all that fills it, specifically over people like you and like me. Moreover, the phrase everlasting to everlasting parallels the phrase from generation to generation in verse 1, thus highlighting God's eternal faithfulness to His people. The theme is clear, from age to age. From generation to generation, from everlasting to everlasting, God Himself, the Creator, the Ruler of everything, is our eternal habitation. He is our dwelling place. Now, I've never personally lived in a home that has experienced a, a break-in, where maybe thieves have come in and entered and stolen certain items. But having spoken with people who have experienced this, I'm told that for days, months, sometimes even years after this, there's just this lingering sense of unrest or vulnerability. Why? Because what once was a, a place of safety and security now feels like a place that is defenseless and exposed to those who might, again, bring harm. So in contrast, this introductory hymn of praise in verses 1 and 2 to our eternal ruler and creator, assures us of the secure, the truly secure abode for the people of God in any generation. What a comfort that is. I wonder, does, does that knowledge, does that touch your heart? Does that impact you? Does that change the way you think of your life in the context of all that may go wrong over the course of our lives? 
Is God's presence a place where your security lies? Is He the refuge you seek through trials, through temptations, through storms within and without? Perhaps you're exchanging your external secure or your eternal secure habitation for a more temporal, a transient sense of security that is bound up in all that this world tries to offer you. Is God alone filling this crucial role in our lives? God is our eternal habitation, but He is also our sovereign authority, as verses 3 through 12 outline for us. Follow along as I read verses 3 through 6. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream like grass that is renewed in the morning. And in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. Moses is contrasting the eternality of God with the transience of man. In comparison to God, man is only but dust, and he will one day return to dust. Notice here that it is who that turns man to dust. It is God. God is sovereign over our beginning, and He commands the timing and the circumstances of our end. As certain as I was born on July 13, 1985, there is a date out there that is fixed in which I will turn to dust. This is true, even as Steve Jobs recognized. This is the future we all face. A thousand years to the Lord as compared to a short three-hour watch in the night. It's nothing to him. Several metaphors are used here to communicate how man is transitory, but God is eternal. Man's finiteness is compared to rushing floodwaters, a passing dream one might have in the night, a new blade of grass that springs up in the morning, but by the evening it fades away. And we are meant to think deeply on these most humbling realities about the brevity of our lives. The psalm goes on in verses 7 through 8. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. We must recognize here that were it not for sin's consequences, we would not even be having this discussion about the mortality of man. Is that not true? On this matter, D.A. Carson helpfully writes, all suffering, all sickness, all death are tied to sin. If there has been no sin, if there had been no sin, there would have been no death and no illness, which is death's prelude. Death must be seen not as the supreme instance of a cosmic lack of fairness, but as God's well-considered sentence against our sin. Death is no accident. It is God's doing. The perennial slide toward death is nothing other than the outworking of God's judicial sentence in Genesis 2:17. When you eat of it, you will surely die. It is always true that the wages of sin is death. 
And just as God observed all of Israel's grumbling, their complaining, their disobedience for year after year in the wilderness, so He observes our most secret sins. We are all fully exposed in the blinding light of God's holy presence. Hebrews 4.13 reminds us that no creature is hidden from His sight, but all things are open and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. There can be no hiding before this all-knowing, eternal God. Verses 9 through 11 read, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, but their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Here Moses recognizes God's ongoing persistent wrath that continues as a result of Israel's chronic wandering away from him. While an average lifespan might include 70 or, if good strength, 80 in our day, even longer years of life, though, Moses laments that the end is always the same for every person. And although the tone is heavy and and Moses' words elicit weighty thoughts, even among us all these years later as we read them together, the climax of the psalm is reached in verse 12 when he says, So... Stay hungry, stay foolish? No. So, teach us. Teach us, O sovereign ruler, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Numbering our days. What does it mean to number our days? Well, this is not completely a a phrase that's absent from our culture today. If an employee is continually insubordinate in the workplace and proves to be a liability to that company's mission, well, it might be stated that that person's days are numbered as a paid employee of that company. Or perhaps a sportscaster might conclude that the days are numbered for a, t- for a particular professional athlete due to perpetual injury or just old age. The point is this, we must realize the brevity of our lives, the shortness of our lives, for this is the very pathway to wisdom. This is the pathway to wisdom. Because God has already numbered man's days, we are invited to do the same in order that we might present to God a heart of wisdom. The writer of Ecclesiastes echoes this same sentiment when he writes, Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies. So the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. Do you live with an awareness that your life really is but a vapor? as James, the brother of Jesus, would later phrase it in the New Testament? What effect does it have upon your soul? Just simply knowing that your secret, your most private moments of sin before God are as public as your last tweet or Facebook post. 
as you see your own mortality juxtaposed against the righteous immortality of God, are you led to a similar posture as Moses? One of humble prayer for God's mercy? Is that the response that that you have to this knowledge? I admit, it's heavy, it's weighty. These are not light matters that we're looking at, that Moses is outlining for us. So we have seen how God is our eternal habitation. We've seen how He is our sovereign authority over both bookends of our life. But let's now see how the text portrays Yahweh as our merciful restorer in verses 13 through 17. The prayer in verses 13 through 16 reads like this, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as, we have, as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to your children. The imperatives here in in verses 13 and 14 cascade forward, return, have pity, satisfy. Why? That we may rejoice. Return, O Lord, have compassion, satisfy us deeply that we may explode in songs of praise to you longing for the Lord's restoration, pleading for divine compassion, and then imploring our God to satisfy us with His steadfast, unmoving, loyal, covenantal love, climaxes with celebration and joy. The hope of God's satisfaction coming in the morning, as verse 14 states, implies a new beginning. Just as all our days have passed under God's wrath, as earlier in the psalm stated, now Moses asked that this would all be reversed, that all of Israel's days would now rejoice in God's merciful restoration of His favor and of His presence. And finally, in verse 17, it states, let the favor of the Lord be upon us, our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You see, true commitment expresses itself in action that can be seen. And God's people not only ask for His favor to be restored to them, but that the work of their hands would be guided and controlled by His mercy and by His grace. As one man writes, frail, limited, and sinful as man is, The love of God can transform what is weak to His own glory. Transforming grace is at the very heart of the gospel, isn't it? As those who have been restored by God's mercy in Christ, we must stare into the brevity of our lives. And whatever time God grants us, we must must faithfully invest it in God's kingdom priorities not our earthly priorities. As we look at this psalm some 3,500 years approximately after it was written, how can we not be moved to add our voice to the ages 
by proclaiming, Lord, you still remain our dwelling place in this generation. As Christians, we recognize that just as Israel found their dwelling place, their refuge, their secure abode in the Lord, we have found our secure dwelling place in our Lord Jesus Christ. No one is able to snatch us out of our Father's hand because our Father's grasp could not be any more secure. He holds on to His own because they are united with His Son through the blood of the new covenant. Our Savior suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might do what? That He might bring us back to God. By absorbing God's anger and His wrath, Jesus Christ propitiated our sins in His body on Calvary's tree. And now, Christians, we are in Him. We are in Christ Jesus. In Him now we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. And it is in Him that we have obtained an eternal inheritance with the saints. And it is He alone who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of God's glory with great joy. You see, our eternal dwelling place is still in the Lord. And it is secured for us through the blood of the Messiah. No other refuge will do. As I've reflected on these themes for the past few weeks, my mind kept running <clears throat> to an older friend of mine. When I was in late elementary school, <clears throat> my family moved across town in our home in South Carolina to Homewood Avenue, 15 Homewood Avenue. And one block away, there was a retired missionary who also went to our church. He had spent upwards of 40, 50 years in Lebanon and Cyprus, and he called our family up and just kind of wanted to welcome us to the neighborhood. And as he got to know me a little bit more, he realized we had a few things in common. His name was Richard Knox, so naturally we shared the same first name, and he found out that we both played the trombone, and he also found out that we both had the same exact birthday. Obviously, a lot of years different, but the same exact birthday. And so what developed over the years was a friendship. And Mr. Knox didn't look at me as this kid who he has nothing in common with, but he started to do things, intentional things, to help me in my Christian walk. Now, he used the trombone to do it. He said, why don't you come on over, walk over with your trombone, and, and we'll play some duets together. And... I remember these times never ending without a time of prayer and a time of reading the scriptures together. And usually he'd rummage through something on his dusty bookshelves and, and find a little book to give me as I went on my way. But I remember being a, a ninth grader several years later and one uh, probably a few days earlier on a Wednesday or Thursday, uh, Mr. Knox gave me a call and asked if I wanted to go with him to a local rescue mission kind of a mercy ministry that was located not too far from us and uh, that housed and fed the homeless in our city. And he said, I want you to give a talk on James chapter 4. 
on the shortness of life, how life is but a vapor and it's here for a moment but will pass away. And I remember going with this older man and, and, and doing some music with him and, um, and then delivering this, this talk on the shortness of life. But more than what happened in any of these, these times was the life message of Richard Knox. And it's something I can't get away from because he refused to retire. He refused to think, I've done enough for God, you know? I've, I've served him overseas, I've given my life, what more can I do? I'll come back and just enjoy the grandkids and go to church most Sundays and I'm good. Now what I'm thankful about Mr. Knox is that he didn't give in to the American dream of making ridiculous amounts of money, retiring at age 45, and then with utter abandonment, completing every adventure on his bucket list. No, that wasn't his life. What I came to find out many years later is that I wasn't alone. I was one of a whole host of young men in our church that he was teaching of what it means to walk faithfully with God, what it means to actually care about the glory of God more than the glory of your own name, what it means to walk in purity before the Lord, what it means to think deep thoughts about how short our lives are and how it only matters is what we invest in God's kingdom purposes. I share that story with you because of how it impacted me and because of how it still applies for us. To the older men and women of this assembly, please don't stop investing. There's the temptation that comes with age to look back, and the temptation can be there to cynically think, I've, I've maybe done enough. Or maybe I'm not as, as able to converse as easily as I once did with a certain generation. But we need your stories. We need your stories. Why? For the simple fact that you've walked with Jesus longer. You've seen him provide. You've seen him take control of chaos in your life and bring order from it. You've seen him time and time again show his providential hand. And these are valuable stories that we must pass on. And those who are younger need to hear them. So those who are younger in this assembly, the younger men, the younger women, would you take the time to listen? Would you take the time to hear these precious stories of God at work? how he's been faithful. In many cases, these saints have fought sin. They've waged war against their own sin and against Satan for twice, maybe three times as long as you've even been alive. Don't buy the lie that death will, will never come in the future and that because you only live once, you should waste your life on foolish pursuits. Don't buy it. And perhaps you're here this morning, though, and you don't really fit these categories, and you know that within the privacy of your own heart, some of these truths are just kind of unsettling. You concur with the fact that life is short, nobody's arguing that, but such strong claims about man's sinfulness and about God's anger and wrath against sin seems regressive and, and primitive. But I assure you that God's people are just as sinful and just as vile as you. 
they are sinners. They are just simple, simply a, a different kind of sinners. Now they are repenting sinners. Those who understand what their sin does to a holy God. And now an ever-growing hatred for all that God hates is present. And an always expanding love for what God loves is growing in us. But we implore you this morning to be reconciled to God. You may know this, but it is true. That the joy of being welcomed into God's own dwelling place surpasses all the fleeting pleasures of sin combined. Moses wrote Psalm 90 as a prayer, lamenting the brevity of man's life, but still rejoicing in the gift of God's all-satisfying presence. Jonathan Edwards once wrote, O oh God, would you stamp eternity on my eyeballs? So instead of staying hungry and staying foolish, let us number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom and in turn treasure our union with Christ who has provided that secure dwelling place for us. Would you pray with me? O oh Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Lord, before the mountains were birthed, before they came into existence, you are God. Thank you for your rescue plan that has been enacted ever since the fall. Thank you for not settling and just wishing us to fall into oblivion, but you pursue us. Thank you, God. Thank you that you have been just as faithful to the people of Israel as you are to your people today. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that the brevity of our lives would, would yes, indeed, sit heavy on our hearts, but the joy, the all-surpassing joy of your presence, of living in the satisfying presence of the Lord would help us to realize life is short and we must not waste it. Help us to agree with you that wisdom comes as we reflect on these things. Father, may this psalm transform the way we view our daily, our weekly lives. Would we allow your priorities to start to squash out some of those selfish corners that we just can't let go of? And so, God, it's for your honor and glory. Would you be pleased with how your Spirit applies these words to our heart? Thank you for meeting with us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me. And for a few moments inside,